This is the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 13th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. Med Zoller is broadcasting this week from the home of, well, kind of the home of the Super Bowl. We're, it's actually in Glendale, but I'm here in Phoenix and getting ready today on Saturday before everything goes a little crazy, as you might guess, between the Phoenix Open in Scottsdale and the Super Bowl in Glendale, we have a few things happening this weekend. And so various things are going around, blimps are in the air, and all kinds of the odd stuff happens this week. So back to that part of it. But we all know that really this time of year is not really about that game. It's all about taxes. And so we're going to talk about the tax update and tax items for this week. And we have a couple of IRS announcements and actually some IRS commentary or statements that were made at the American Bar Association's uh, tax meeting they held, always hold here in February and see what else we have in terms of this. And also we're going to be looking at some IRS uh, guidance internally that they gave about a particular issue. So we're going to start with the what became the big news late in the week. The IRS relents to pressure, eventually released guidance on state payment programs taxability, and generally for most people it's going to be good news. Also the IRS this week gave us another piece of good news, well kind of. They're going to offer direct deposit if you file a Form 1040X amended individual return in order to, at least electronically, you know, instead of having to wait for a paper check. But in the end, they kind of kill the whole thrill by noting that it's still going to take quite a while to get the return processed. So that's not going to get any better at this time, whichever way you do it. Also on the buzzkill, we have the IRS this week at the ABA meeting stating that it's unlikely there'll be any substantive Section 174 guidance on amortization of research and experimental expenditures prior to the initial tax deadlines in March and April. As such, you're going to be going at least into the extension period, not really knowing how exactly the IRS interprets today those laws that went in place back right around, I think, the 54 code uh, was about when they turned up. And finally, an internal email with the IRS where appeals was looking to allow a taxpayer to essentially file, you know, go ahead and pursue their refund claim. But the IRS chief counsel's office squashed that by stating that the filing of a form 4868 did not itself qualify as an informal claim for refund in this case. And as such, the statute had already expired on this taxpayer, so there was nothing that appeals could do. So let's go ahead now and talk about first that whole bit about state tax payments. This came out in IRS News Release 2023-23, titled IRS Issues Guidance on State Tax Payments to Help Taxpayers. This came out on February the 10th, basically Friday, late on Friday, actually. It actually came out after 4 p.m. here in Phoenix, which put it about 6.15 p.m. or so on the East Coast. So late, late. Somebody, somebody was down at the IRS National Office late getting this out, I would assume. On February 3rd, the week earlier, the IRS had announced there'd be upcoming guidance on state tax payments. As you may know, a lot of states in the past year had various programs that essentially issued checks to individuals, you know, taxpayers in the state. And there was a question as to whether those checks were actually taxable to the recipients and if they were under what conditions, or perhaps did they qualify as an exception under, depending on the program, 
the general welfare exception, the IRS cites a number of times for certain programs, or maybe it's a 139 disaster relief payment. And so there was a question, because if it was one of those two, then the payment would be exempt. Or maybe it's a state tax refund, which case then we might have to worry about whether Section 111 comes into play as to whether or not the amount would be taxable. So the IRS came out with an announcement on the 10th. The announcement covers specifics for 21 states, although there are some variations. For the most part, the guidance falls into two categories. The state programs will be treated as either Category 1, a state tax refund, or Category 2, a, well, they kind of look like general welfare or maybe disaster relief, and it's complicated, but in any event, we're going to go ahead and let you treat it as non-taxable and just not challenge you on that, that group of states that we have. There are a minority of the states are those pure tax refund states, while most of them are general welfare or Section 139 payments. Now, it's important to note here, and I don't think it's accidental, that the IRS is not really committing very much to tell us why you know, which category would render them not taxable. And I think the problem is the service is concerned that they might find themselves uh, stuck with this guidance in the future. And they, they don't want to find that being the issue. So what they're going to do is go for something just a little bit different. So this is the release that you may see from the IRS. And in this release, which probably I should expand up or make a little bit bigger, so hopefully you can read it. Uh, you know, it talked about those states. It's going to talk about these issues in a couple of issues. And we'll go through these states here a little bigger on the slides. But you'll notice that there'll either be a refund of state taxes paid, or there's going to be, this paragraph goes on a long way and never really takes the position of which of these, if either, each state qualifies under. But what they do tell us is that these states are essentially not going to be considered taxable. Now, you may notice that a few of these states have a little number by them. Um, and it's interesting. And New York's number didn't get entered right. So what you're going to find out is that Alaska, Illinois, and New York have some special cases that we're going to be dealing with there under that category. So we'll do that issue, right? Now, they also note that other payments made by states are generally includable in income for federal tax purposes, and this includes payments from Alaska's permanent dividend fund and payments from states provided as compensation to workers. Those are considered to be taxable payments, and you're subject to the tax. Now, the other nice thing the IRS has is you'll notice there's a link here to a chart. This chart actually gives you the specific link back to, let's say, a specific state page, like the California description of the middle class tax refund page. If you come down here to California and you click on that, you're taken to the page that describes the California middle, tax, middle class refund. So this way you can actually get details on all the various state programs they're talking about here you know, for the various states in question. So if you want to know what exactly you've got, how it works, etc., these are the state programs in question. Now, what the IRS has told us, of course, is that while, you know, tax refund states, these states are Georgia, Massachusetts, South Carolina, Virginia, and you know, and then two partial states that are partial refund states, which is interesting category, that your partial refund, but partial refund states will include the states of 
Illinois, and New York. Now, what we mean by tax refund state is you're going to apply this under the standard tax benefit rule of Section 111. Now, what that means is, in theory, you do a with and without calculation. You treat as if on last year's return, you had claimed a deduction for not the taxes that you did list on the return, or you, did, you didn't consider in determining your deduction, but you rather took this smaller number, you know, reduced by this refund that you were given later by the state. Generally, most taxpayers, I think you're going to find, at least my experience has been, most of the itemized, at least in my, my, in my firm, are over the 10 grand limit. And those who don't have 10 grand of state and local taxes, well, they really don't have enough deductions to itemize. So usually you're going to find that there's no tax benefit because either the refund from those states will be not enough to drop state and local taxes below 10 grand or the taxpayer couldn't itemize, couldn't have enough expenses. There are, yes, definitely taxpayers who fall in the middle and may have a taxable amount there, but considering the vast majority of taxpayers don't itemize, and a huge chunk of those that do have the $10,000 state local tax cap limit to play with, probably this is not going to catch out very many taxpayers who would have these payments be taxable. Now, the partial refund states, this is noted here, that Illinois and New York have a couple of programs, and one of which was structured as a true refund of state income taxes, and the other of which was structured more broadly. So you have to go to the guidance on those states. For the refund of taxes program, you do the Section 111 analysis I just mentioned. And 111 analysis says, okay, if we, didn't, if, if we just reduced our tax deduction last year, assuming we really claimed a deduction, and assuming that that reduction in state taxes would have changed the deduction, because again, if you're at the 10 grand limit, and let's say you're at the $10,000 limit, you have 20,000 of state local taxes, and you get a $1,000 refund check, well, you know, that takes you down to 19, that's still less than 10, 10 is going to be your limit. If you didn't itemize, of course, it doesn't matter what your state local tax numbers were. So in those cases, no big deal. But if you did actually, you're below 10 grand, uh, then what we do is we take a look at with that change in the deduction. Uh, would you have actually seen less tax due on your federal return or would it have changed a carryover? That's the basic rule of section 111. If either of those are true, you have a tax benefit and you'll include some or all of that refund. Now, it could be some because you may find a level at which you stop getting a benefit. You know, if I just, so maybe a $1,000 refund, yes, it would reduce it, but a $500 refund wouldn't have changed anything. So then you get to that cutoff point and you do that by iteration, basically iterative calculations to get yourself to the point where you got no benefit. Generally, it's pretty obvious where it is, but sometimes things can get messy. So you might have to iterate on it. And again, the partial refund state, same issue there. Now, the largest number of programs, though, come under the general welfare or disaster relief. Well, at least things that the IRS says, well, it might be those. We don't know why it is or isn't. We can't say for sure why it might be or it might not be those, but basically we've got it. Now, those states include California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois for some program, Indiana, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon.
right? Um, Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. Now, there is one other special case that's a little bit different, and that is the case of Alaska. Alaska pays an annual permanent fund dividend to all residents of the state that is taxable. But there was a supplemental energy relief payment that was received in addition to the standard permanent fund dividend. So the supplemental energy relief payment received by a, basically by somebody in Alaska is going to be considered to be non-taxable while the permanent fund dividend as it has been in the past will be a taxable payment. So again, the IRS has the general discussion and the state-specific guide, so you might want to look at both of those. As I noted, that more detailed page, interesting to look at, especially to look, and if you're not aware of what specific state program they're talking about for maybe a state, because maybe you're doing an out-of-state return, or you didn't pay a lot of attention in your own state during the year because, hey, you know, there's enough other stuff going on. Um, in any event, you can go back there and take a look at the programs that were available and are covered by this. Next up, another IRS news release. This one came out the day before on February 9th. This one is new IRS feature allows taxpayers electronically filing amended returns to choose direct deposit to speed their refunds. This is IRS news relief 2023-22. Generally, you may remember, IRS began accepting electronically filed form 1040Xs back in 2020. So we're now kind of three years into the program. But when they did that, you still had to basically get a paper check. If you were asking for a claim for refund, once the IRS approved your claim, you had to wait, the paper check came in the mail. There was no option to direct deposit that, to just dump it in the bank account. And your client may be like the person on the slide, who of course is sitting there with their ATM card, you know, waiting to get that money out of the bank. And they didn't really want to wait and have to go in the bank and deposit the check. So they want the money to go straight in because it happens faster, which it does a bit faster. And it also means I don't have to go in the bank. And like, you know, pe people may not realize these days that there are doors on the bank or that the ATM takes checks in. So who knows? We have those issues going on. So we can now ask for direct deposit, but here's the key. While the IRS systems are available to it right now, obviously a key problem for those of us in practice is your software has got to be updated to take advantage of that feature. So you want to make sure you check to see if your software has been updated for the years in question to allow it to take advantage of that feature when you file the amended return and ask for direct deposit. Is that available in your software? My guess is since generally we do this for the year in question, so we have to go back to let's say the 2020 tax year. Uh, version of our tax software to do this, that probably means that the vendor is going to have to release a brand new version of the 2020 software, which would allow us to then file the 2020 return, right? File that return for 2020 and do the direct deposit for that amended return. Doesn't do us a whole lot of good. We're going to be waiting a while if it first starts with amended returns for 22, because that would take a little while to go through. However, the IRS wants to be a bit of a buzzkill here. And what happens on the buzzkill side for the IRS is this. Well, whoops, how do you like that? End up going through this. So let me go ahead and I went, went through slides a bit quick there because looks like I accidentally pressed a function I didn't want to press. So anyway, we'll, we'll get there and we'll figure out what it is. But this is the electronic refund option that the IRS has now. So we're going to get ourselves to the IRS. We're going to go for these electronic refunds that we're going to be able to now get. 
So, and as I said, what they tell us here though, which is nice, they talk about the program here, they call it a big win for taxpayers, that's always useful that we have big wins, we like big wins. So we'll go for that. But the one problem is down at the bottom, you'll notice they tell you that current processing is more than 20 weeks for both paper and electronic file amended returns. And I would say that's probably short, you know, of what the actual time period is you're gonna find, right? They note that processing an amended return remains a manual process, even if it's filed electronically. The person has to review the whole thing. Now, it does say, well, you'll cut a little bit of time out of that. I guess you, you, know, you, you don't want to wait a minute long and you have to. So the mail time will get out of there. Direct deposit information uh, provides a convenient and secure way to receive your refund faster. But they're not saying you're going to receive it fast. So, so let, let's be clear. Faster is not the same as fast. It's not going to be fast, so we'll leave with that. Next is an article that was in tax notes this week. And this article discusses by Nathan Richmond, and it's reporting on the American Bar Association's annual tax convention, tax section meeting that happens in February. It happens every year about this time. And generally there are a lot of stories published in tax notes about this sort of thing. And one of the key ones there is a discussion about the section 174 amortization rules. Now, as you're probably aware, Right, remember that? Section 174 for 2022 requires us to amortize research and experimental expenditures over five years if they're domestic, 15 years if they're outside the United States, rather than being able to expense them immediately, as we've been able to do since Section 174 was added to the code back in 1954. So it's been a while doing this, but 174 is there for this purpose, and it's been around. Now, of course, the IRS did get out guidance about changing your accounting method. And that obviously is something that's important because your accounting method change is something we have to worry about here because you need permission and you're going from expensing to, you know, being able to, or I should say not being able to, you just have to amortize it over five years with a half-year convention the first year. So because of that, you have to get permission and that was released. Now, it was made clear that if you do it the first year you should, 2022, that you get audit protection for prior years, which, okay, great. And then number two, you don't have to do a 3115. If you do it next year, you wait a year, uh, the IRS did clarify with a follow-up to the revenue procedure that you don't get audit protection in year two. You only get audit protection in year one. So the IRS could still come back and go after you for the prior year. So you have to be a little bit aware of that, that you're gonna open yourself up. So yes, they're intending that. And that was part of the deal. Now, Wendy Fries of the Treasury Office of the Tax Legislative Council, who spoke at the meeting, noted that the IRS is working on procedural guidance. That is, what exactly does it mean? What is the service's position about the expenses that qualify, those that don't? Is there any sort of de minimis issue? You know, what exactly does it matter if you claimed it for the research credit? Is it really the same numbers as a research credit? broader than the research credit, narrower than the research credit expenses. I mean, you know, how do we get in here and what is it? Well, the IRS is working on that guidance, but bad news, it's not a high priority. And Wendy indicated that pretty likely it's not coming out by the uh, tax deadline. 
So, and whether you consider that March or April doesn't matter. Probably by the time you're doing extensions, and April is actually the payment date for most of this, right? Because if you have a partnership or an S-Corp, that's not paying at that time, but your, you know, your shareholders or your partners are. So April will be the date you write checks. And yeah, seems like it's very, very possible you will go to check writing day without having any idea exactly how the IRS will interpret this. And good luck at that point, um, as they say. So until then, we only have old regulation 1.174-2. Now that regulation, you know, has been around for a while, but obviously, you know, it's not the clearest guidance and it's old and it never mattered much in the past and now it matters. And we don't have a lot of case law in this area because really the only real big case issue that came up years ago was related to whether you had to have an operating trader business to claim these 174 expenses. And essentially the courts have ruled generally that you didn't have to have one, but that was allowing you a deduction, which is a little different than whether or not we're talking about this amortization problem and when we have to amortize this and over what time period. So we'll see how the service interprets things then, but for now, and remember, I still think the IRS to some extent is delaying this because they're still quietly hoping, as many are, that the IRS will essentially, uh, or I should say Congress will essentially undo this, eventually fix it. And I should note there was an article this week also in Tax Notes Today that apparently the Problem Solvers Caucus is now working on, you know, some extender, how to get extender built through this Congress. Just kind of interesting discussion about how you would do it. Again, it's divided, so anything that goes through clearly has to have something that will attract votes from both sides of the aisle. There is a discussion about arranging and the child tax credit would be in the mix, but not a full version that we had under ARPA but the discussion is for a somewhat reduced version, but refundable. So better than what we have under the current law, you know, which went back to the pre-ARPA law, but not as generous as ARPA. So again, now how far that goes, we don't know. Until they actually come with a proposal, there's not much to go with. And then secondly, will they be able to get the non-problem solvers, shall we say, in essence, most of the Congress, uh, to go along with this, or will everybody head to their corners and just battle and use the standard lines against each other? We'll have to see when that comes up. Finally, this week, we're going to look at an email issued by the IRS, IRS Email Advice 2023-06008. This was issued on February 10th of this year, and this discusses an interesting situation where Appeals is asking the Chief Counsel's Office if they can authorize signing or they can sign a Form 907 agreement to extend the time to bring suit where a taxpayer had filed a Form 4868 extension of time to file. Now, email notice, email stuff obviously doesn't give us all the background and this email makes it pretty clear that there's been a lot of back and forth going on before this came out with an actual uh, ruling of sorts. But it seems pretty clear that probably where we're sitting here is we are sitting between the dates. You know, in essence, if the April 15th date mattered, 
right? And I'm presuming, again, it's not clear if there's no filed return, if there's been a filed return, what exactly has happened. But in any event, we're sitting where if, in fact, October 15 is the date that the return would be deemed filed, then you could go ahead and you can file, you know, or I should say, if past April 15th would work, then, then we can make it go. But if it's actually cut off at April 15th, we're in trouble. Now, what they did, of course, April 15th was they filed a 4868. And that 4868 does show that, you know, they put total tax expected, taxes already paid in, and it showed that they expected a tax refund. So Appeals was thinking, and the taxpayer had pointed out, that there was a suit called Kaffenberger, or basically a case called Kaffenberger, uh, that from back in 2003, where a taxpayer had been held to have made an informal claim for refund. And one of the key things that happened was the amount of the refund he had asked for was on the request for extension of time to file the return. And in the facts of Kaffenberger, the court had concluded that Mr. Kaffenberger, you know, essentially had a valid informal claim for refund in place, which essentially kept the statute open as the IRS had not declined, not basically turned down the refund claim, and therefore he could still pursue and, you know, pursue his claim for refund. He had a right to do that. Now, the chief counsel's office pointed out that, no, you really can't do Kaffenberger. Now, they said, look, th this is an outlier case at best. Uh, saying, you know, generally, you have to have a couple things. You have to be, IRS has to be put on notice about the fact there's a refund, and they have to have some specific information about the nature of the claim. Just kind of broadly, hey, IRS, you owe me money, is not good enough. You have to say, hey, IRS, you owe me money because I will have a right to claim a refund due to A, B, C, D, E. And that's why my taxes currently are overpaid and why I have a claim for refund. The council noted that in the Kaffenberger case, actually the IRS knew a lot of this information, right? In essence, they, they noted that the IRS had contacted the taxpayer, had done a substitute for return apparently, had indicated that there was a refund which was there. Again, he filed this extension, but apparently never filed the return. So the IRS had contacted him prior to the expansion of the, you know, basically contacted him, indicated that they were aware he had a possible refund, and they were aware of that before the statute dated run. So they said, that's an unusual case. Right. In this case, the IRS really has no idea why this person thinks they would get a refund of X dollars. This is not apparently where a substitute for return was either prepared or, you know, or would have come up with a refund had it been prepared. So the service was not aware of this potential claim for refund. So as they said, it wasn't there. They also noted that the Court of Appeals in this case had noted that Kaffenberger was very unique. It was a very close call and especially on the idea of whether this was a claim for refund. Essentially, the court said, this is about as far as you can go to have an informal claim for refund. And the IRS is interpreting this as meaning that this case does not hold that a 4868 showing a potential refund always qualifies as a claim for refund, or even very often could qualify. That'd be very specific facts. And so that's what's in play.
And in this case, because you only have a single form 4868 showing a balance due, no other information known to the IRS, um, in essence, there's just not enough there, right? With no informal claim, which is the IRS's position in this case, because they failed to inform the IRS about why they would be owed this money back. The uh, taxpayer, or essentially the uh, counsel's office determined the statute has run, with the statute having run, uh, basically, appeals cannot sign that document uh, to extend the time to file suit and allow the taxpayer to go into court. In essence, that's, that's not authorized unless there was an informal claim before them, and they're ruling that it wasn't there. It's also pretty clear from the email that appeals wanted to make, do this route and let him go this route, and apparently, yeah, he's been trying to argue it with them. And it looks like counsel's office finally said, nope, sorry, guys, this is it. It's not going to work. We can't do that for you. Well, it's been another week of taxes. And of course, you guys in the 21 states that are impacted, Arizona did not have a program on that list. So, you know, we're here in the one of the 29 that didn't. Uh, those of you in those states, you have all that stuff to look over and hopefully you hadn't filed returns paying tax on the amounts at this point. Uh, good news is so far I've not had a whole lot of returns. I don't know if we have any yet that are ready to go anywhere, um, go out the door. So we still haven't done a whole lot there, but it didn't really matter in Arizona. So you have those to work with. But we'll see what else comes up. It's been interesting that really there's not a whole lot happening in terms of guidance right now. Um, what we have is guidance via news releases or guidance via chief counsel advices, uh, but not a whole lot in cases right now that are of broad interest and certainly not a whole lot of IRS issued guidance coming. So hopefully that changes and we can get something more interesting, shall we say, to talk about. But in any event, uh, I again, if you have questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. I also follow along on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and I take a look at Idaho's uh, site for their discussions if something pops up there. So if you're in one of those state societies, you can pop in there and uh, give a question, and if I think I can do something, I may respond to it. Otherwise, uh, Hopefully you have a good week. We're heading into the real part of tax season as February 15th comes by. So the brokerage 1099, consolidated 1099s have to start getting released and I'm seeing them already. So we'll, we'll see how the rest of this tax season goes. Probably be not great, just like the other recent ones, but hey, you know, you can always hope for better. In any event, we will hopefully be talking to you here next week. We'll talk about what's going on in the area of current federal tax developments.